Businesses thrive by knowing customer insights because today's insights are tomorrow's facts. At iResearch, we live and breathe insights. And despite searching high and low, we were unable to find a customer insights podcast that answers one of the most important questions in business. Why do customers do what they do? So we launched one. Hi, I'm your host, Darshan Mehta. Joining me today is Nishant Mehta. He is the president of IRI. He has an extensive background in getting at insights and consumer behavior. And he is passionate about finding unique ways to leverage data to improve ways that businesses can engage with their consumers. Hi, Nishant. How are you? Hi there. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you've had quite an extensive career here so far. And curious, tell me a little bit about your journey and some of the aha moments that have brought you to where you are today. You know, I think there's a handful of them, but maybe two in particular that are probably most interesting to me. So one, I have a technical background. Math and computer science are sort of my educational training. I don't know that I use either one in my current job. And so I think one of the aha moments for me is that it was more important in school to learn not the content of the classes, but the way to learn. And I, I mentioned that in the sense of computer science to me is very much a way of learning. It is how do you take a big problem, break it into smaller pieces, and then address each one of those pieces, debug each component as its own distinct component while always thinking about how those components come back together. And I think that applies to everything. It applies to being a general manager of an organization. It applies to planning a wedding. You know, anything in our lives can oftentimes be thought of in, in that frame. So to me, that's a big part of the way of learning and the way of applying other skills that I've learned throughout my career to the job at hand. The other one that I would argue is a pretty important one for me is the carrot versus the stick. I've had the opportunity to have a number of managers in my career, some of which have motivated me through the carrot and others have motivated me through the stick or, you know, some form of fear or, uh, you know, some sort of a competitive nature of, you know, if you do this, you will get ahead. But if you don't do it, you won't get ahead. And I find very strongly that people are far more motivated by the carrot. It's the long-term way to engage with your employees. There might be some short-term situations where a stick is needed, but frankly, we're all in this one together. We're all fearful of the outcome as opposed to uh, you know me providing that fear onto somebody else. And so that's been a big component for me just in terms of watching those that I have worked for and figuring out what gets me to put my best work forward. I think it's interesting about the carrot and stick, something I think we all kind of grapple with. I'm curious, have you found kind of the balance, the mix that you think works well? <laughs> it's a good question. I think it's actually personalized or customized to the individuals that you're engaging with. I'm a big basketball fan, big Los Angeles Lakers fan. And Pat Riley was a coach of the Lakers when I was growing up, won, I don't know, four or five championships. But by the time he left in the late 80s, maybe early 90s, it was clear the team had basically just lost the ability to listen to him anymore. And I think in some part, the feedback was he only had one style and it was always on. It was 100 miles an hour. And it just, it worked for Magic Johnson in early in his career. It didn't work for him later in his career. And it certainly didn't work for a more empowered set of players that started to feel like, hey, I need to have more of a voice in my relationship with my coach. And so I think there is an importance in understanding your team the experience levels they have, the knowledge that they have, the expertise that they bring to the table, the dynamic they have within themselves, and then adjusting with the idea being that your North Star is always to gear towards at least a little bit away from center towards the carrot side of the spectrum. And I'm curious, you know, we're talking about this in terms of management context, but how much does this actually apply also to consumer behavior? 
Yeah, great question. You know, I'm a big believer probably in the similar concept of personalizing consumer behavior, right? That we talk all day long about, oh, the consumer has done this, the consumer has done that, as though all 330 million people in the U.S. and all 7.5 billion people worldwide are the consumer, which is clearly not the case. In fact, I would argue, as we think about COVID and all of the changes that we've talked about people have created during COVID, there were households in this world, in this country, that were absolutely operating the way they do today pre-COVID. There were people that were concerned about their health. There were people that bought organic. There were people that only wanted plant-based products. There were people that washed their hands and used hand sanitizer. There were people that liked to make mixed drinks at home rather than spending the money at the restaurant. All of these behaviors are behaviors that exist. They just existed in smaller pockets around the country or around the world. And so to me, a big part of consumer behavior is not necessarily that the consumer has shifted. It's that the parts of the individual households within the consumers that represent all of the infinite types of behaviors are changing in terms of which behaviors are more prevalent than others. And so it's rare that we find a net new consumer behavior that just sort of doesn't really exist. But what we do find is that more and more people guide towards one or the other, and it's our job to figure out where those directional shifts are occurring. What are some key recent significant shifts that you've seen in consumer behavior that you've uncovered? I think there's a handful. And then interestingly enough, there's a reversal of some of those as well. Again, going back to this idea that those behaviors exist, they you know go up at times and then come back down. What I would say the first year of the pandemic, a big shift that we were seeing was related to premiumization. And if you think about it, it makes sense, right? That many of us who might go out to a restaurant, spend $50 a person on a meal, spend $15 for a cocktail, now can't. But we don't mind trying to recreate those same experiences at home, but we're doing so now without the markup of a restaurant. And so I'm able to actually go into a grocery store and buy the most amazing mixers possible. I'm able to buy the best, I'm a vegetarian, but somebody who's not a vegetarian could buy the best cut of meat, and it would still be less than what they were willing to spend on it by eating at a restaurant. And so that was a very common trend that we saw was that people, obviously, as they were forced to ship more of their food spend into the grocery store, were still willing to spend half the money they were spending in the restaurant and still buy something that was twice as good as what they were normally buying. So that was a big shift that we saw. And oddly enough, it's only in the last 60, maybe 90 days that we've seen any real significant sort of broad macro trend away from that, that would seem to start to indicate that people are feeling the pinch in their pocketbooks and now starting to figure out how to save some money, or that the new normal is now the money that they're spending at the grocery store and they're looking to actually cut some of that spending. I would say another item, and, and this is an interesting one, because in the consumer goods industry, we are creatures of habit. My sense is many of the listeners on this podcast, if you thought about the consumer goods that you bought, 95% of the time, the product that you replenish is likely to be the exact same product that you just ran out of. It's the, likely the same brand, likely the same size, likely the same flavor. It's rare for people to try new things. And in some sense, it's the Steve Jobs black turtleneck example here that I've got to make a million decisions. One of those should not be whether or not today is the right time to choose a different brand of peanut butter. Like it's just easier in my mind to just repeat the thing that I bought previously and focus my energy on the things that actually need some creative thinking. The pandemic taught us wildly differently. One, for health reasons and just, again, you know, reasons of trying to outrun the virus, we were changing things that we bought. Supply chain challenges 
created huge problems. The brand that I wanted to buy wasn't actually available anymore. Instead of having three meals outside and you know 18 meals at home, I was having one meal outside or zero meals outside and 21 meals at home. So I needed variety. I couldn't eat the same foods over and over again. It was just you know boredom. I lost my commute, which meant I gained an hour in my day. And while many of us probably feel like we worked an extra hour, there were a number of folks that ultimately did take that hour to be more creative in the house, use that time to cook more, you know, things along those lines. And so for a host of reasons, we had to become more welcoming of variety. And so we've seen that as a big, both sort of positive and challenge to the industry in that brand loyalty is very difficult to come by these days. You are programmed now to want to try new things because, again, either the thing you want isn't available in the shelf or you're tired, you're bored of the thing that you have been doing for quite some time because it, you're doing it every single day now. And so for a host of reasons, the ability for consumers to try new things is actually sort of an interesting world that we now live in. I would say that's probably the other big change that we've seen. I would argue that one last thing, and I bring it up simply because I think it's important for us to understand in a world where inflation is clearly sort of the thing everyone is talking about. When we talk about inflation being higher now than it's been in you know 40 plus years, I think the important thing to note is that it is rare to have a situation where we have high inflation while also having significant upside pressure on wages. And so what you do have is a scenario where absolutely inflation is doing what it does and which none of us like, which is it's eroding the power of the value of the money that I have. But it is also in a world where for anybody that is working, they are likely seeing their salaries increase simply because minimum wages are going up around the country or because the job market is hot and people are switching jobs, things like that. And so you do have a scenario where while inflation is going up and theoretically would result in people trying to cut corners, you also see wages going up, which means that we believe that those corners may not be cut as strongly as an otherwise 8.3% headline inflation rate would otherwise indicate. So I'm curious, we talked about quite a few different shifts here. And some of these, uh, would you say they're titanic shifts or just normal shifts that occur on a regular basis? The variety one, I think, is a pretty titanic shift because it has impact on so many things that a company works on, right? So it has impact on product innovation. It's no longer acceptable to jump on the big consumer trend and move all your resources over to whatever that big consumer trend is. And again, as I'd mentioned earlier, we've never been a fan of that approach because that trend is going to go away. It's going to subside. And frankly, not all households are going to move in that direction. You still will have households that continue to do the quote unquote newer behaviors. And so the variety is forcing companies to recognize that I can't put all my eggs in this future basket because six months from now, three months from now, I'm going to shift some portion of it back to the current stuff that I do right now. And frankly, it's entirely possible that the exact same household might have a shift that only applies to Tuesdays and Wednesday goes back to the way they were before. And so from a product innovation perspective, your portfolio needs to broaden as opposed to shift in the movement of where you think the sort of broad definition of the consumer is going. From a marketing perspective, marketing changes a lot because I would argue over the last several decades, we have been in a one-way direction towards more and more direct response marketing. You know, measurement of digital media was always about, did the ad drive a sale 10 minutes later, 15 minutes later on the internet? And what that's resulted in is very little focus on brand building and very much a focus on just get the person in their particular need state to act in your favor in that exact need state at that exact moment. 
And I think what we've learned is that is not the world that we live in. Consumers make decisions all the time. They are looking for variety. They need to have your product in the back of their minds constantly. One of the interesting examples that somebody on my team shares a lot is in the old world, again, the old world being the world that's still 90% of CPG goods are bought in the brick and mortar world. You walk down an aisle and you're looking to buy shampoo. There are a hundred different choices that are placed in front of you at the shelf. So your mind has to process a hundred of those. And in that scenario, it might be the case that you just simply navigate to the one that you previously bought. That's the thing you're most comfortable with. Online, you search for the word shampoo on a browser, let's call it, you know, a desktop, and you're going to be presented with search results. And there might be a, you know, three by four grid. So you've got 12 options that are presented to you. So it's actually cutting down from what you would have in the physical store. If you're on your mobile device, You've probably got three items before you've got to scroll to get to the next page. If you're ordering through an Alexa device, you've got one item. It's the one item that they're going to present to you and say, do you want to buy this or not? And you say yes or no. So it's sort of this interesting world where while everyone talks about the fact that by moving online, assortment has become infinite, this notion of the infinite shelf, and I could have every product available to me, my consideration set shrinks each and every you know movement forward. Or the smaller my screen gets, or at some point the screen goes away and it becomes a voice interface. And so this combination of variety, consumer being open to more things, but using interfaces to make purchases that are narrowing down their consideration set, in my opinion, that is going to be the challenge of the next decade for marketers, is how do you keep in the back of people's minds that they should be specifically asking for you so that my request of Alexa is not, I need to order some AAA batteries, it's I need to order some Energizer AAA batteries so that the one request that comes back is actually the one that Energizer wants me to select. Interesting. So how much would you say today's consumers are making decisions to buy products versus buying experiences? I live in the CPG world, and so my answers are likely to come at it from that particular focus. And I would argue that the vast majority of consumer goods do need to solve a particular job. You know, you go to sort of the the most basic of components, toilet paper or toothpaste or ketchup. These are things that oftentimes don't necessarily engender experiences, but then clearly fresh foods absolutely do in terms of the cooking experience. And so I think there's an honest discussion that every brand needs to have. And this is, again, one of those examples of not everything goes in one direction. You have to decide in certain categories that the consumer is all about efficiency and in other categories, the consumer is all about the experience, and then you tailor the way in which you promote the product accordingly. But I think there's no doubt that the consumer, in this notion of looking for variety, will choose a product that provides them with a variety of potential you know, experiences versus a product that offers the exact same thing over and over again. It seems like listening to you, I'm getting the sense that the need to keep a greater pulse on what's going on with consumers has maybe increased more so because things are shifting very quickly. Or would you say it's the same as before? No doubt. Yes. The consumer has shifted quite a bit. And again, it's not in a one-way direction to you know an unrecognizable consumer today versus two years ago, but it's that every single month the consumer is moving around. So in the aggregate, different things are happening. The last two years have been obviously crazy. And I would argue that none of us should be building for the next 10 years in looking at how we handled the last two. Let's hope that we don't live in a world that moves around as much as it has over the last two years. We are all figuring out now with vaccines and natural immunity and you know antiviral drugs and things like that, that we can all get back out into the world and start doing the things that we were doing in 2019. But what I do think is we have learned 
that there are a set of signals that we need to pay closer attention to that start to give us more advanced notice of where we see these trends popping up. We have a huge advantage in our space, again, the consumer goods space, in that you and me and everyone else spends money on consumer goods every day, certainly once or twice a week that they're making a visit to a grocery store, a drugstore, a Walmart, et cetera. And so we have the ability, if we look at those signals, to literally get weekly updates on what consumers are doing across the entire country. We oftentimes you know, argue that we probably have a better sense of when you're going to get a pet before anybody else, including potentially other people that live in your household, because you'll start buying the pet bed, you'll start buying the kitty litter, whatever products that you actually need. And you need to buy those things before the actual arrival of the pet. And so in that scenario, we have a pretty good signal of what the consumer is about to do or what consumers are about to do. And I think people are beginning to pay more attention to that signal far more than they did a couple of years ago. I'm curious, you know, you said in many ways consumers are going one direction, but another direction often at the same time. So I'm curious when you're looking at behavioral data, that's more of what they're doing, right? And so how important and how do you actually tap into the underlying triggers or motivators that are going to maybe, you know, cause the next move to be maybe a little bit different than the current move from, you know, either external factors or internal factors? It's a really good question. I think a big learning for us as a company has been that quantity is not always sort of solved for what you're looking for, right? So I think there's been, again, in in our sector, call it the last two, maybe three decades, there has been this move towards big data and bigger data and data warehouses, then, you know, data lakes. And, you know, now we hear about data oceans and things like that. And it's always this idea that just get more data, get more data and get more data. And I think what we need to start thinking through is what types of data make the most sense. So if I told you that in the aggregate across the U.S., hand sanitizer went up by 150% in the first six months of the pandemic, it might actually have been higher than that. That tells you one picture in the aggregate. It's when you started to look at different pockets of it that New York City had an 800% increase, while other parts of the country didn't see much of a change at all, that you begin to understand these kinds of intricacies. And so the interesting thing there is it's, in fact, the opposite of big data. It's smaller pockets of data, and maybe even more importantly, qualitative data. It's actually asking individuals why they made certain purchases, why they didn't make other purchases, that when put together with consumer trends, start to help you understand not just what is happening, but and ultimately to diagnose the problem, why it's actually happening. So qualitative data sets have become a really big deal for us in the last couple of years. Interesting. So, I mean, you've been doing big data for quite some time. So I'm curious, what are some things that people still have misperceptions or doing it incorrectly when it comes to big data? And what should they be really doing with big data? I think part of it is what we just talked about, but I'm just curious if there's more to it. Yeah, so that is one, right, is this sort of recognition of data is useful in its individual, you know, records of data, uh, not necessarily only in the aggregate. So the aggregate is really intended to help you start to figure out where to begin your search. It doesn't end the search. So that's sort of one component that I think is an important part of how we think about data and analytics. I think there's a second component of this, which is infrastructure has become very cheap. And so it is very easy now to just host any kind of data you want. And again, there is this natural tendency of if I can get the data, why not? Might as well throw all the data that I can into the sort of sandbox that I'm playing in. I think what we've really seen over the course of the last five, seven years has been an acceleration of privacy concerns. I still remember 10 or 15 years ago, very few people worried about privacy. And the general tendency was, oh, we're just on a one-way path in this world to more and more data collection about people. 
And we've clearly seen a very significant backlash in the opposite direction. And it's all for the good. It's positive behavior. But I think those two things put together, the idea that you had infrastructure getting cheaper and therefore that was an impetus to want to collect more data in what perceived to be kind of a forever thing. You would just always collect more data. We've finally seen what's actually going to stop us from just collecting infinite amounts of data. And it is that it is now becoming dangerous to collect data that you don't actually use. And as a result, I think what that's doing is it's creating a set of data insights professionals whose sole job is to understand what I can do with this data before we actually make the investment to go out and recruit it and build it and bring it in and transform it and load it and combine it and integrate it with all of the different systems that we have in-house. That, to me, is a really successful outcome. You, you know, in, in anything, you never want something to grow unchecked. And I would argue 15 years ago, we hadn't yet arrived at the conclusion of what was actually going to check this sort of astronomical growth in data. And I think we now know what that is. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. When it first came out, I was like, oh my God, we can get all this data and it's great. Let's just capture it all. But I think what I'm hearing from you now, there's a greater shift, especially among people like yourself that have been doing this for a while, is more and more data is not going to give us more clarity. What's going to give us more clarity is the context. And actually, it sounds like you're actually trying to get more qualitative information now to give a depth to the data. So I'm curious, how are you guys going about getting that qualitative now? Yeah. So one, just clarification, it's not that we're looking at qualitative to exceed quantitative. It's that we've probably overdone it on the quantitative and now need to catch up on the qualitative side. But I think to answer your specific question, so, uh, you know, we have seen a huge increase or influx in the notion of receipt capture apps, right? So this idea that in the past, it's possible to get purchase behavior from the retailer directly, but there are some privacy challenges around is the consumer actually giving the retailer permission to share that data? You know, we think, yes, we think that that data in the aggregate is absolutely data that can be used to improve the relationship between the retailer and the consumer. But we think that getting the data directly from the consumer is also a very sort of safe path. If you can incentivize a consumer to take a picture of their receipt or to forward an email that has a receipt in the email that allows market research to be performed on the aggregate of those receipts, we think that there's a lot of value in that. The consumer gets a very clear value exchange. The consumer makes the active choice that, yep, this value exchange makes complete sense for me to offer the data that is effectively mine to a third party in exchange for some value exchange. And so we think that that's been a big trend we've seen over the course of the last probably two to three years has been collecting a set of individuals who are incentivized to take pictures of their receipts and then can also then be asked questions about their receipts. You just walked out of a Walgreens. We see that you actually bought, I don't know, Red Vines licorice instead of Twizzlers. We don't exactly know why, because you normally buy Twizzlers. So, hey, we'd love to send you a quick trigger survey that helps understand why you made that shift. Was it something specific about today? Maybe you were buying for a family member. Maybe you were taking a trip out to the West Coast and, hey, everybody on the West Coast likes Red Vines instead of Twizzlers. Or maybe your household is actually ready to start shifting. And so, again, all of those things could be potential outcomes. And how are you collecting that data? I mean, you just say mostly by mobile devices. And then what kind of incentives seem to work for these kind of consumers to give you this information? Yeah, you know, I think, again, going back to the notion of personalization, the collection has to be in a variety of different ways. Some people prefer that it be their mobile device taking pictures of apps. Some people prefer that it just be your emailed receipts. And in terms of incentives, those are also all over the map. Sometimes it's just simple money. 
it's just cash or, you know, some sort of a gift card. In other cases, it's a commitment to make a charitable donation in your name for each receipt you upload. There's a variety of different, you know, notions here. Sometimes people just like being part of a bigger thing, right? So this idea that, hey, these are some things we can help solve the baby formula shortage. If we had more information about who's buying and why, are you willing to contribute to that? And so I think, again, each and every consumer is going to be somewhat different. And it's important to figure out what makes each consumer tick in order to get the outcome that works for both parties. So as you're trying to get a little bit more qualitative information and data, have you found kind of the right mix between qualitative and quantitative that seems to give you the right amount of context to the big data? There is a mix for sure. So I think that's sort of the foundational answer to the question is one or the other does not work. And we found that repeatedly. We have a point of sale data set, which is the sort of the big data set. It's 100,000 stores in the US and you know hundreds of thousands around the world that report every single week by UPC, by week, by store, what got sold. That's the big quantitative data set. We've got a panel that's the qualitative data set, about 110,000 people that physically scan the items that enter their house. We oftentimes connect the two. We use a statistical methodology that doesn't allow the panel to deviate too far from the point of sale data because the point of sale data is the sort of ground truth. We know that's the accurate data. So where the panel data potentially deviates, chances are that there was some bias introduced into the panel, which is always the challenge in any sort of a statistical sampling problem. You're always trying to figure out how to minimize the bias, minimize the variance, and those two oftentimes act in opposite directions with each other, and so you have that challenge. Having a big data set that you can always use to ground the uh, qualitative data set is a great way to remove some of that bias. And so we find that it truly is the combination of the two, the qualitative set uh, used as a way to dive deeper into the quantitative set and the quantitative set used as a way to validate and de-bias the qualitative set. They, they work in tandem. So if you had to make a recommendation for companies moving forward to keep a better pulse on consumer behavior, what are some things that you recommend that they do other than hire your company? <laughs> uh, no, it's a, it's a fair point. So listen, I mean, Everyone has some form of first-party data. That has to be priority number one, is how do you maximize the value of that first-party data? How do you organize it? How do you get it into a place where you can use it? How do you define you know, what, therefore, you're missing? For instance, in the example I provided earlier, if your first-party data is primarily quantitative data, which it is for most of us, right? If you're a direct-to-consumer e-commerce website, your data set is likely to be people that actually bought your products. What you will be missing at that point, though, is did they buy competitive products? Am I simply one of a consideration set of products that they buy in the category, or do I have a monopoly on that household's purchase in the category? You won't know that. And so that's where the qualitative data set potentially helps, is that you are able to actually survey, do some market research directly with some of your folks. That's where third-party data sets become very valuable, because they can tell you what else the consumer is actually spending money in around the category, and you start to get a better sense of how you're performing in the overall consumer household, as opposed to just your interactions with that consumer. And so I think that's kind of number one, is inventory the data assets that you have right now, and then therefore, by definition, figure out what you're missing in terms of getting a complete picture of how your consumer interacts with the entire category. I would say the second thing that to me becomes quite important is setting up sort of a, an agile testing lab, if you will, for everything that you do, whether it's marketing or new product innovation or price changes or packaging changes or supply chain tweaks, right? Whatever it is in your business that gets your product in front of the actual customer, use your data 
to set up in a way that allows you to change on a daily basis, try new things, lab experiments, and then use your own data to determine whether or not something worked. Easier said than done in certain industries. Again, in the CPG industry, the fantastic benefit we have is the quick purchase cycle. If you're selling potato chips, I can make a change and in three weeks, you will have gone through three purchase cycles in your household and I will immediately know if that change worked or didn't. If I'm in the auto industry, that's obviously much more difficult. But again, there are ways around each of these things, depending on the industry that you're in, set up your data to enable you to run these lab experiments and quickly, as quickly as possible, get some signal that tells you whether or not the experiment did better or worse than the status quo so that you can constantly iterate your business and adapt to, again, we talk about this changing consumer. By the time you spend 16 weeks to figure out how the consumer has changed, they've changed again. And so you've got to build a system that self-adjusts to the changing consumer because you're constantly trying new things and then just adapting to the things that have an uptake and sort of, you know, taking away the things that didn't. So what do you see on the horizon in terms of better ways to understand consumer behavior that you think is going to be available to us or shifts in terms of how we understand that with new technologies and just changes that are happening? This probably goes back a little bit to the one of the, the things we said earlier in terms of sort of two opposing forces, right? You've got one force, which is just more sensors in our life that are tracking things about us and the environment around us. And then you've got the other sort of focus on privacy and consumer backlash that are forcing us to determine, well, should we actually be collecting these pieces of information? I think if we started with the first, there's no doubt that your mobile device throws off an amazing amount of data about an individual, right? Location data is something obviously for the last, call it five, seven years, we've started to figure some of that out. Accuracy probably is within question. And so we will see that improve over time as networks get stronger, as GPS signals get stronger, the quality of the location data will absolutely get better and start to become able to you know, make decisions based on. But it will obviously come in opposition to the privacy guidelines that make it very clear that you should have control over whether or not your location data is actually shared with any third party. And so that's kind of one example of the two different trends actually meeting each other in the middle. We've seen a number of things, again, in the, call it the grocery channel, where cold storage, right, has sensors everywhere throughout the supply chain that help you understand the temperature that that product remained throughout the entire supply chain. There are examples like that that are going to be really good because they will help us understand. And I think a perfect example of this would be the vaccinations, right? The mRNA vaccinations, when they first came out, had to be stored at an extremely cold temperature, right, that required obviously special instruments that make it much harder to distribute the vaccine in, you know, third world countries, for instance. But what we have also noticed is that mistakes are made. The vaccine is not necessarily transported at the right temperature. And yet when they test the outcome, it still has the potency that they were expecting. Or maybe it doesn't. I don't know the outcomes of these things. But the beauty of these kinds of data collection algorithms are that natural experiments start to occur. And we will start to learn things about those natural experiments that will cause us to do things that weren't pre-planned. And in some sense, I think of this as the sort of evolution meets AI type concept, right? One of the concerns about AI that many people have is that if a machine is actually making a decision based on historical data, it's only natural that every machine coded with the same AI algorithms will arrive at the exact same conclusion. And what that means is then you have everybody doing the exact same thing. And that mutation that steps in can actually come in in the same way that natural selection works on all of us. That mutation, somebody that does things slightly differently, 
actually ends up becoming the winner because they're working with a whole bunch of people that now have predictable behavior. It's sort of standard game theory. The same would hold true in this notion of the more data that we're actually collecting starts to allow us to figure out things that we didn't actually program into the system. We didn't purposely raise the temperature of the food when we transported it. It happened by accident in some quote-unquote experiment in some truck route somewhere else. And as a result of that, we learned things along the way that allow us to become more efficient. And so to me, I think that's one of the beauties of data collection in every part of the world that we live in. Is it's going to allow for these natural experiments that I alluded to earlier to take place and allow us to predict what we thought the outcome could be. How much of AI would you say currently is actual artificial intelligence versus automated intelligence? Yeah, the difference between the two is quite important because automated intelligence is frankly intelligence that exists in human beings that we've just decided to replicate in a machine. And that is the vast majority of what happens in the world today. I think what we really are starting to think through and you know, the last two years have been quite good is I may not understand why more of X is happening, but I don't care. More of X is happening. So let me just do what supports more of X. The confidence to do that is pretty critical, right? So I think two things need to happen. One, we as a society need to begin to trust that a machine actually has the right data to look at and therefore decisions it makes based on that data are correct. And then two, that the machine also has the ability to see the effects of those decisions so that it can correct if we go too far. And, uh, you know, you look at something like self-driving cars, like that's a perfect example of that. That part of the reason why we're not yet ready to turn over our lives to self-driving cars, even though one might argue we're on the cusp of them being safer than human drivers, is because we don't yet trust that they are safer than us. And we don't have the full faith that when something changes, that the self-driving algorithm can actually account for it. And that's proven in you know, the fact that self-driving cars have a very difficult time in emergency vehicle situations when there's a police car or a, an ambulance on the side of the road, that tends to be when a larger proportion of the accidents actually take place. And so we've got to solve for that. To your point right now, much of what we do is, hey, I programmed a machine to simply do what all of history tells me, the human, and therefore what I've programmed the machine to do. What we need is the machine to be able to adapt to itself and then convince us that it can adapt to the situation, that's going to be what ultimately gets us over the hurdle and starts to allow us to trust machines to do more. I agree with you. Yeah. So I'm curious, if you were to write a consumer book, what would you having in the title <laughs> for the book? <laughs> we're not a trend. We're not predictable. Stop trying to predict us, I guess, would be what I would say is react to us, don't predict. Something along those lines. <laughs> so I'm curious, you've been in this uh, industry for quite some time. You've met a lot of people, but if you had the ability to have lunch with someone regarding consumer behavior, customer insights, who would you want to have lunch with and why? You know, it's probably a, a cliched expression at this point, because I think the lunch would turn into you know days of conversation. But I am fascinated by Apple's position on privacy. And so Tim Cook or whoever came up with their privacy position, to me, it's an extremely bold move that they made to be so protective of data on the phone. It's clearly a marketing ploy to do that. They clearly sort of looked at their competition with Android and decided, hey, this is one way we can potentially differentiate ourselves. But the flip side is I trust Google Maps traffic data far more than I trust traffic data from any other source because of the fact that I know that Google is crowdsourcing that data from a larger number of people that don't have to go through as many hoops to allow that data to be pulled from the phone and used for the traffic data. And so 
the conversation I would love to have is I can absolutely appreciate that a consumer should know what their data is being used for, but there have to be situations where the aggregate data set may actually be so useful for society that you don't need to be as aggressive in preventing that data from actually being used. And so that to me would be a fascinating conversation is it's not as sort of black or white as Apple has probably made it in terms of data collection. Well, I think that's the quandary, right? And in terms of privacy data is in some ways we as users, we love having all this data for ourselves like Google Maps, but that's, you know, when we're using it, but when it comes to us giving it, <laughs> that's a different situation, right? And so I guess, you know, one has to decide what's the better long-term strategy is to empower the customer to basically make that decision as opposed to someone else making that decision. So That's exactly right. In pure economics, we call this an externality, right? That the entity that benefits is not necessarily the entity that has to put up the cost. And whenever costs and benefits are not aligned, you end up in a situation where there is no market solution to the problem. You've got to work through regulation and policy and things like that. And my sense is when my kids are my age, they're going to laugh at the world that we lived in. Like the confusion that we had here will all be resolved hopefully well before that. Um, but it does feel like we're in the midst of an environment that is moving so quickly and has been created so quickly, really only in the last 15 years, that I wouldn't have expected us to figure it out. And we need to go through these sort of machinations to ultimately get to what the final outcome will be. But there will be a final outcome that makes all the sense in the world. And we will just take that forward. And it's going to constantly evolve too, right? So it's not going to, it's not going to be Correct. static. So there's a framework. Exactly. You're right. There's a framework that probably is somewhat makes sense. And then you're right. We evolve it over time. Well, listen, this is a pleasure talking to you. I think you and I could talk for many more hours and I look forward to for sure. perhaps doing another podcast, another topic with you, but I appreciate you taking the time to give us your background and insights. And I really enjoyed talking to you about consumer behavior today. No, thank you. It's clearly something that I, you know, I'm passionate about. I know a lot of our employees and colleagues are very passionate about. Hopefully we've made a few of you a little bit more passionate as well. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thank you. Getting to AHA was brought to you by iResearch. To find out more about us, head to iResearch.com. And make sure to search for Getting to AHA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. And don't forget to click follow to ensure you don't miss any future episodes. Thank you for listening. <laughs>